and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, January 4th, 2022. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. Starting on today's front page, our first article is headlined, Educators, Increasing School Funding, Matter of Survival. Iowa educators seek 5% rise, over twice as much as 10-year average, by Grace King. Educators are asking for an increase of 5% in funding for Iowa public schools, saying it's crucial to retain and recruit staff, reduce class sizes, manage increased operating costs, and make up for decades of underfunding. A 5% increase is survival, Mount Vernon Superintendent Greg Battenhorst said. The cost of operating a school district increases by about 3% to 4% each year, according to school administrators of Iowa. However, over the last 10 years, state aid has increased at a rate of less than 2.1% on average. Iowa lawmakers must set the growth rate for state supplemental aid in the first 30 days of each legislative session, which begins this year on Monday. Cedar Rapids Interim Superintendent Art Sathoff said the education budget should be a sacred cow. He believes increasing state supplemental aid by 5% is realistic, given the economy. My fear would be that it comes at the expense of succeeding years, he said. Inflation, which has increased by about 8% in Iowa this year, is stretching school districts' dollars even further, educators say, and paying teachers a livable wage is challenging. Declining enrollment in many districts exacerbates this problem with the state's per-pupil formula of about $7,400 a student. The Cedar Rapids Community School District, for example, has seen a decline of about 1,400 students in the last five years, Sathoff said. The state provides reliable and sustainable funding increases to Iowa schools, said Iowa Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitfer, Republican of Grimes. No aspect of the state budget has received more new funding since 2017 than K-12 education. Since 2017, K-12 funding has increased by over half a billion dollars, he said. Whitfer said workforce shortages are not specific to education or to Iowa. It is an issue impacting every sector of the economy, he said. Over the last couple years, the legislature has passed several different loan repayment incentives, eased unnecessary licensing requirements for educators, and reduced taxes for all working families so they keep more of what they earn. Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley, Republican of New Hartford, agrees. We're spending more money on today on K-12 state supplemental aid than we ever have in the state, he said. Iowa House Minority Leader Jennifer Confers, Democrat of Windsor Heights, said Democrats will continue to fight to increase funding for education, which is desperately needed. Republicans are defunding Iowa's public schools, said Iowa Senate Major- Minority Leader Zach Walls, Democrat of Coralville, the impact of which is bigger class sizes and making it harder for Iowa to attract and retain workers. We obviously need to be investing more in that next generation of teachers and having a stronger pipeline, raising teacher pay and shrinking class sizes, he said. These are good for teachers and they're good for students. Another priority for all Iowa school districts is the state fully funding four-year-old preschool. Children who participate in early childhood programming, such as preschool, have better health and better social, emotional, and cognitive outcomes, according to the Iowa City Community School District's legislative priorities. Research also shows that students with access to four-year-old preschool are less likely to repeat a grade, less likely to be identified as having special needs, more prepared academically for later grades, and more likely to graduate from high school. Those not in quality preschool opportunities are going to start their K-12 school experience behind their peers, Mount Vernon's Battenhorst said. The key of preschool is learning how to work and play with others. It's not even about academic skills. 
Preschools help develop that foundation for learning. Currently, Iowa's statewide voluntary preschool program provides funding for free half-day preschool to four-year-olds. Half-day programs can be a barrier for working families who are unable to find childcare before or afterwards or transportation for their child. Confirst said Democrats will be pushing hard this year to fully fund four-year-old preschool, which is a great equalizer and could have a positive impact on the future of the state. Republican leaders Whitver and Grassley said fully funding four-year-old preschool will be up to the Education Committee. State educators also are asking for an increase in funding for mental health services to address the alarming need across the state, according to the Iowa City Community School District's legislative priorities. One in five children in the United States has a mental, emotional, or behavioral disorder, according to the American Psychological Association. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for middle and high school students. Our teachers didn't go into education to be therapists, but that's become one of their de facto roles because of the greater social-emotional needs in the classroom, Battenhorst said. Many school districts have agreements with mental health providers to provide counseling services to students, but the demand is great. We need to make sure we're incentivizing providers to come to Iowa and educating more providers to provide services for kids, Confirst said. The problem with children's mental health in the state is far from solved, and it's going to take some investment, is going to take some resources, and frankly, it's going to take some attention to get this done because kids need more than they're getting. Grassley agrees there's a need for more providers. We can put all the money in the world toward this, but there just aren't people to fill the jobs, he said. Incentives need to be created to attract workers to the profession and to rural Iowa, he said. It's equally important for school districts to be able to provide mental health services to their teachers and staff, Cedar Rapids-Sathoff said. There's no job in education that has gotten less complicated or less stressful, he said. Also on today's front page, GOP eyes different take on Regent University funding. Focus will be on workforce, retaining graduates in Iowa, by Vanessa Miller. Although a Republican-led effort last year to change the way Iowa funds its public universities didn't materialize, the concept isn't dead, as lawmakers are airing plans to revisit the idea in the upcoming session in their debate over how much to give the state institutions. When it comes to education funding, quite frankly, I think it's time for us to take a look at how we fund the Regent institutions, said House Speaker Pat Grassley, Republican of New Hartford. We're not opposed to providing more funding into that area of the budget, but we feel we have to get a return from the standpoint of helping fill these high-demand fields in which there's needs all across the state. Included in last year's Republican-backed higher education funding proposal, which Grassley said is similar to what we will look at this year, was a mechanism to provide scholarships and incentives for students to stay and work in high-demand fields in Iowa after graduation. I think that's a perfect example of something that we can do that will do two things. Number one, drive more people into these degrees, but also keep them here to help fill these high-demand jobs, Grassley said. We want to try some new things, and this would be a new idea that we really haven't done a lot of investment in the past. Something that we could try to make sure that we're not just doing things the way we've always done. Iowa's Board of Regents every fall sends appropriations requests to the legislature broken down by general higher education funds to be distributed among the three public universities at the Regents' discretion and by special schools and special purpose units, such as the University of Iowa-based State Hygienic Lab and Iowa State University-based Agriculture Experiment Station. Lawmakers in the House and Senate then propose funding amounts and come together for a compromised appropriations package 
they send to the governor for approval. Lately, the legislature has denied the regent's full appropriations request, even cutting support for amounts it had already approved on occasion, like in summer 2020, when lawmakers took back $8 million and brought the total higher education appropriation to $63 million less than it was two decades earlier in fiscal 2001. When regents last year asked for a $22.1 million increase, including $15 million in general higher education funding, the three universities vowed to spend on things such as mental health resources, graduation and retention rates, and filling high-demand jobs in Iowa, lawmakers instead okayed a $5.5 million general education funding bump, amounting to a 1.1% increase for each campus. Republican lawmakers had proposed a bigger bump of $12 million, but wanted to tie it to a new Iowa Workforce Grant and Incentive Program administered by the state's College Student Aid Commission. The program would have supported students directly through grants and scholarships and compelled the universities to compete among themselves for state dollars by enrolling more high-demand majors. And they need students because the enrollments are decreasing, former Representative David Kerr, Republican of Morning Sun, said last year while debating the proposal as chair of the House Education Appropriations Subcommittee. I think this is a great plan that they'll jump on board with. Grassley recently said he still likes the idea. I think we want to change the conversation from just funding the Regents' institutions to turn out more degrees, whatever those degrees may be, he said, citing workforce demands in specific areas like engineering, computer sciences, and teaching, for example. So what our approach is going to be is we're willing to offer some ways to make you more competitive to attract people into these fields, he said. And part of what our proposal did last year that we're looking at for this following year is not only getting people in these high-demand fields, but also additional resources to keep them in Iowa after that as well. The Board of Regents for the upcoming budget year requested $34.7 million more in education appropriations, an ask driven by accelerating inflation that, if granted, would bring the state's total region education appropriations to $610.5 million. The UI has committed to use its share to address Iowa's nursing shortage and improve outcomes for students who are the first in their family to attend college. ISU, too, has vowed to use additional state dollars to help first-generation students address state workforce needs and foster agriculture innovation, among other things. The University of Northern Iowa has said its increase would go toward keeping tuition competitive with regional peers and churning out more teachers. We want to make sure that any money we're spending, and this isn't exclusive to the regions, it's everywhere we spend money, that money is being spent in the best way possible, said Senator Jack Whitford, the Senate Majority Leader from Grimes, stressing the importance of keeping tuition affordable and ensuring students reap the reward of state appropriations. All these conversations are things that we'll have throughout the appropriations process. Continuing with state and local news, Lynn Supervisors elect Zambaugh as new chair. Board will consider suggestion to hold meetings in cities around the county by Gage Miskaman. With a new Lynn County Board of Supervisors in 2023 may come new meeting times. The supervisors will officially vote on a new meeting time during today's formal meeting. However, it seems likely that all three supervisors will agree to switch the work and formal session meeting times from 11 a.m. to 10 a.m. Louis Zumbaugh, entering his third year as a county supervisor after previously being an Iowa legislator, has become the new chair of the three-member board. Zumbaugh is the only Republican on the board. Thank you for your vote of confidence, Zumbaugh told his colleagues Tuesday. Joining him as vice chair is last year's chair, Ben Rogers. 
Rogers, a Democrat, returns to the board for his fifth term, serving the county. He was re-elected in November over Republican challenger Brent Mason. County newcomer Kirsten Running Marquardt, who is coming to the county after and coming to county office after more than a decade in the Iowa legislature, also joined the board for her first supervisors meeting Tuesday. Running Marquardt is a Democrat who won an open seat race against Republican challenger Mark Banowitz in November's election. The suggestion to move the meeting time earlier in the morning came from county staff. Longer supervisor meetings that begin at 11 a.m. tend to cut into the lunch hour and push staff work back into the afternoon. My office has a vested interest in those meeting times, Lynn County Auditor Joel Miller told the supervisors Tuesday. The time proves to be problematic for that. Some of those meetings run into the lunch hour, so the morning is pretty much shot, and in the afternoon they have to play catch-up on the minutes. So it would be nice to move it up earlier so meetings can be typed up and recorded while they are still fresh. Zumbaugh proposed that the Monday morning work session and Wednesday morning formal session begin at 10 a.m., while the Tuesday morning department updates start at 9 a.m. I know the time we have now is a struggle for staff, so I was willing to put it on the agenda, Zumbaugh said. Neither Rogers nor running Marquardt had an issue with a proposed new schedule. The supervisors will vote officially today to make the change. We're trying to make this convenient for our internal customers and the staff, but our external customers and the public as well, Rogers said. Evening times are problematic with overtime and other issues that are solvable, but the reason why we hold our meetings during daytime work hours is typically for those reasons. Miller also suggested to the board that the supervisors hold meetings around the county in the various cities in the future. I think 10 a.m. consistency is great. What we can do to make things easier for the workforce is important to do, and I also appreciate Auditor Miller's suggestion in going to other communities as well, Running Marquardt said. Zumbaugh said the idea of going to other communities is great, but he would want to make sure that doesn't cause a new issue for staff moving forward. I'm not against it, but it needs more thought other than more people may come in if we're in their area, Zumbaugh said. I think it's a great suggestion, and we can reach out to mayors and city clerks to see if we could even do lunch and, and learn type sessions with city councils and make them open to the public with public comment, Rogers added. I think there are ways we can do that that's beneficial for the communities. Johnson Supervisors select Green Douglas as next chair for 2023 by Isabella Zaluska. The Johnson County Board of Supervisors unanimously selected Supervisor Lisa Green Douglas as the next board chair during an organizational meeting Tuesday. The board also unanimously selected Supervisor Rod Sullivan to serve as vice chair. Green Douglas was elected to the board in a special election in January 2016. She was re-elected to a full four-year term in November 2016 and again in November 2020. She grew up in Carson, California and moved to Johnson County in 1980. Green Douglas, who has a PhD in Spanish from the University of Iowa, has taught at the University, Clear Creek Amana High School, and Cornell College in Mount Vernon. Before being elected to the board, she worked as a Spanish language trainer. Green Douglas is passionate about improving availability and quality of mental health care in the county, according to her page on the Johnson County website. She was involved on several committees that created the GuideLink Center. Sullivan was elected to the board in 2004. He grew up near Sutliff in Northeast Johnson County. After graduating from the University of Iowa in 19, 1988, he worked six years with the Department of Human Services and five years as Executive Director of the ARC of Johnson County. Among his accomplishments while on the board, Sullivan includes creation of the Community ID Program, Rural Warning Sirens, 
the Free Tax Help Program and Investments in Sustainability, according to his page on the Johnson County website. The chair and vice chair positions last for one year. Board work sessions will continue to be held at 9 a.m. Wednesdays. Formal meetings will continue to be held at 9 a.m. Thursdays, except for the second Thursday of each month, when the formal meetings will begin at 5.30 p.m. Woman dies in CR stabbing, two detained but not arrested. Death is city's first homicide of the year, by Marissa Payne. Cedar Rapids police are investigating a fatal stabbing that left one woman dead Monday night. It is the city's first homicide of the year. Joint Communications Agency dispatchers received a call at 6.44 p.m. Monday regarding a stabbing in the 2100 block of Northtown Court Northeast, according to a news release. When officers arrived, they found an adult woman suffering from a stab wound. Devonna Walker, 29, was treated at the scene and transported to a hospital, authorities said. She died from her wound. Authorities said two individuals were detained, transported to the Cedar Rapids Police Department, and interviewed. Both individuals were released pending further investigation after consultation with the Lynn County Attorney's Office. The investigation is ongoing. Those with information about this or any other unsolved case may call Lynn County Crime Stoppers at 800-272-7463. Callers may remain anonymous and also may be eligible to receive a financial reward for offering information. Robbie Smith plans deep dive in new role. It's been 40 years since there's been a new change, says newly elected treasurer by Sarah Watson of the Quad City Times. Republican Robbie Smith, a Davenport lawmaker who unseated Democrat Mike Fitzgerald to become the first new state banker in 40 years, plans to do a deep dive into the office's programs and investments before committing to any changes. In November's elections, Smith ousted Fitzgerald, the longest serving state treasurer in U.S. history, and took office this week. The treasurer is responsible for maintaining the state's investments, including its pension funds, and serves as its elected banker. The office also runs programs such as College Savings Iowa, iABLE, a program for Iowans with disabilities to save tax-free, and the Great Iowa Treasure Hunt, which returns unclaimed funds to its owners. We're going to take a look at the whole office. It's been 40 years since there's been a change, and I think we need to modernize the office, Smith said. He would like to advocate for a savings program under the umbrella of the treasurer's office that allows Iowans to save money tax-free for a down payment on their first home. But it's basically what I also campaigned on, Smith said. If there's a time we need to stand up to the federal government, I'll be the megaphone. I will look to advocate to return money back to the taxpayer. But the number one thing is protecting people's money and get the best return on the investment. This fall, several Republican state treasurers made moves to divest state funds from firms they said focused too much on environmental and social issues. West Virginia's treasurer this fall announced that several banks, including Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, and Wells Fargo, would be barred from government contracts with his state because they were reducing their investments in coal. More recently, in December, Florida State Treasurer announced a plan over time to pull $2 billion out of BlackRock, one of the country's largest investment firms, over the company's focus on issues like climate change and workforce diversity. Smith said he'd talked with several lawmakers who might introduce legislation related to the Iowa Public Employees Retirement System, which manages a retirement fund for former government employees, investment in BlackRock, but he'd leave investment policy like that to lawmakers. I think when it comes to investing, the number one thing is return on the money. And then number two is to make sure we're protecting Iowa's business and industry, Smith said. We don't want to invest with someone that wants to harm agriculture. So I think the answer is we're going to wait for the legislature to give us directive on that. 
Smith pointed to Iowa Code that prohibits the state from investing in companies that boycott Israel. Fitzgerald and his staff sat down with Smith and his future chief of staff a few weeks after the election, Smith said. I can tell you they've been nothing but gracious as far as helping us get up to speed, knowing what we need to know to take over January 1st, Smith said, adding that he commended Fitzgerald for his service and for his help during the transition. Following are several articles from the Capital Notebook section of today's paper. Uh, it is This is all uh, authored by the Gazette Lee Des Moines Bureau. Byrd joins anti-Biden lawsuits on first day. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd signed on to lawsuits challenging President Joe Biden's administration and Democratic-backed laws during her first day in office Tuesday. Byrd, a Republican who took over the office after defeating Democrat Tom Miller in the November election, made challenging the Biden administration in court a central plank of her campaign, along with her assertion that she would back the blue and support law enforcement. Byrd signed on to a challenge led by Nebraska to Biden's student loan debt forgiveness program, as well as lawsuits challenging vaccine mandates and challenging a provision of the American Rescue Plan Act that prevented states from using federal funds to cut state taxes. Iowa had already been a party to the lawsuits Byrd signed on to, her office said in a news release, but Miller had not attached his name to them. Byrd also appeared to represent Republican Governor Kim Reynolds in her appeal to the Iowa Supreme Court, seeking to reinstate Iowa's so-called fetal heartbeat law, which would make abortion illegal except in the earliest weeks of pregnancy. Susan Christensen re-elected as Chief Justice. The Iowa Supreme Court reselected Chief Justice Susan Christensen to continue as Chief Justice for the next two years. Christensen of Harlan was first selected as Chief Justice in 2020, succeeding Mark Cady, who died in 2019. She was appointed to the state's highest court by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds in 2018. She spent the previous 11 years as a judge and practiced law for 16 years in Harlan. Christensen is the second woman to serve as the court's Chief Justice. I'm honored to be selected by my colleagues to continue to serve as Chief Justice of Iowa's court system, Christensen said in a news release. The Chief Justice sets the court's oral argument schedule, delivers the state of the judiciary address to the legislature, and presides over oral arguments and court conferences. Republican leaders decline press forum. The Iowa Capital Press Association's annual legislative preview forum was canceled this week after Governor Kim Reynolds, Republican Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitfer, and Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley declined to attend the forum. The forum, previously held by the Associated Press, has been held for more than 20 years, giving Iowa reporters an opportunity to ask legislative leaders of both parties about their plans for the upcoming session. The Iowa Capitol Press Association is very disappointed with this decision by Republican State House leaders, a decision that continues an unsettling trend of reduced availability to Iowa journalists, the association wrote in a news release. The Iowa Capitol Press Association hopes to resume the forum next year or at another time this year. Here's a feature article from today's community section. Family Awaits ID of Missing Iowa World War II Navy Aviator by Pat Kinney. Family members of Iowan Alden Pearl Anders are still waiting for him to come home 77 years after he and his crewmates were shot down off Indonesia in the Pacific Theater of World War II. Among those waiting are a niece, Sherry Peterson of Cedar Falls. But the wait is over for her father, Alden's brother, Merwin Anders. Merwin recently died at age 96. He had recently resided at Bridges Senior Living in Waterloo, adjacent to the Grout Museum District. Peterson and Anders were frequent visitors to the Grout Museum and the Sullivan Brothers Iowa Veterans Museum, 
until Merwin's health deteriorated about a year ago. He was unable to see the Grout's recent exhibit on the conflict in which his brother served, over land and sea, Iowans in the Pacific in World War II. But Peterson said her father loved history, particularly World War II history, because he was very close to his brother. Merwin's death came as prospects for a positive identification and return of his brother's remains were possibly as close as they've ever been. Peterson and a cousin-in-law, former Sioux City resident Pete Hiddle, are determined to see the quest through to a positive conclusion after 30 years of research. Alden Pearl Anders grew up near the now unincorporated Northwest Iowa community of Manita, west of Spencer in O'Brien County. He was an aerial radio man, third class, aboard the Rugged Beloved, a Navy PB-4Y1 Liberator bomber placed in Puerto Princesa, Pelaway Island, Philippines. On June 16, 1945, about two months before the Japanese surrender that ended World War II, the plane went on a mission over the Makassar Straits in what was then the enemy-occupied Dutch East Indies, now Indonesia. The plane strafed and bombed Japanese targets in the Bay of Makassar before being hit by anti-aircraft fire crashing into the bay. One crew member survived the crash but was later believed to have been executed by the Japanese. The other 10 crew members, including Alden Pearl Anders, were listed as missing in action and presumed dead. Bodies eventually washed ashore. After the war, several graves that family members now believe contained the remains of the downed Navy airmen were found near a church in Macassar City. They were moved to an American military cemetery in Barakpol, India. In 1947, the caskets were exhumed from there and taken to the National Cemetery of the Pacific at the Punchbowl Crater in Hawaii. There were six caskets, two of which contained multiple sets of remains. They were unable to be identified at that time and were buried as unknown. Now, the remains of more and more military personnel missing or unidentified for decades are being identified with modern DNA technology by the U.S. Department of Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency. Families of eight of the rugged beloved crew members, including relatives of Alden Pearl Anders, have sent DNA samples to the agency. The priority now, says Pete Hiddle, is to expedite the agency's exhumation and identification of the possible rugged beloved crew members' remains, which may include Anders. Given the circumstances and time period, I do believe the six caskets are our crew members, Hiddle said. To that end, Hiddle, now a resident of Louisiana, has written U.S. Senator John Kennedy of that state seeking his assistance. Hiddle and Peterson are hoping that Uncle Alden Pearl Anders can finally come home and be laid to rest. Peterson said she especially wants it as a memorial to her father. Hiddle has started a Facebook page memorializing the crew at facebook.com slash ruggedbeloved. Now we'll move to the editorial page. I'll read today's letters to the editor. Due to the large number of obituaries today, we may not have time for them in our second half. The first one is from Cindy Nicholson of Cedar Rapids. Its headline is Taking Issue with Immigration Column. I'm glad I wasn't the only one taking issue with Cal Thomas' December 22nd op-ed. His statement to me about adding more cream to the coffee smacked of racism and white nationalism supremacy. Does this guy really belong in the Gazette? And that was a letter from Cindy Nicholson of Cedar Rapids. Second letter today is from Gretchen Ree Robinson of Mount Vernon. The title is See Our Homeless Camp Bulldozing is Disturbing. Thank you for the front page story, Cedar Rapids Homeless Encampment Bulldozed by City, December 30th, that tells us more about a Cedar Rapids homeless encampment now gone. The photos are disturbing, absurd and destructive. The city's defense. The raising of homeless encampments are necessary for both sanitation and safety purposes. Another justification. 
beneficial to get them, people choosing to live at the encampment, on the right track. Some advocates for the homeless say forcing people into a shelter is not the answer for people who habitually live outdoors. It might be wise to ask the homeless what they need instead of assuming what they need, because you don't know, said Daniel Reed, a homeless advocate. The photo of the Reverend Gary Sneller, an advocate, hanging an American flag at his home, a flag gifted to him from the homeless community, is deeply moving. It moves me to visit willisdady.org and learn more. Out of sight is not out of mind for people who deserve more dignity than to have their community bulldozed. Again, that is a letter from Gretchen Ree Robinson of Mount Vernon. Open reception for Hillary Nelson exhibit to be held January 13th at PS1. An opening reception for Hillary Nelson's new exhibition, Parking Portal, will be held from 4 to 6 p.m. January 13th at the PS1 North Gallery, 229 North Gilbert Street in Iowa City. The exhibit will be on view until February 3rd. My work is built from stuff that probably used to be other stuff. Now it looks like it could be something you think you know, but you just aren't sure, she said. I think about the pieces like B-roll or like a score to a movie. You listen and all the wonder and melodrama are halfway there. They are objects, but they gain from the presence of something else. They are whole by bringing in outside noise. They hold you in place between knowing and known. Nelson, an assistant professor at Maharishi International University in Fairfield, received her MFA from the University of Iowa School of Art and Art History. Her work was included in a recent group exhibitions at Public Space One. From 2018 to 2021, she was gallery director and curator for the Times Club Gallery in Prairie Lights Books in Iowa City. Last year, Nelson was an artist in residence at La Okea Current Desert 23 Degrees in Atacama Desert, Chile. This year, she will be an artist in resident at Buinho Residency in Mesahanga, Portugal. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, January 4th, 2022, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Beverly Ann Wirt, 78, of Robbins, Iowa, died peacefully in her sleep on January 2nd, 2023. Keeping with her wishes, cremation rites have been accorded and burial will take place alongside her husband, Gary Wirt. Beverly was born in Waterloo, Iowa on May 14, 1944, to John Asa and Gwendolyn Stoltenberg. She married Larry Philip Wilson, who passed, and later married Gary Lewis Wirt on December 22, 1994. The couple shared a beautiful home in Davenport, Iowa, where they took great pride in taking care of their home. Beverly's career included working at Wilson's Meatpacking Company for many years, a Girl Scouts field director in Centerpoint, and even owning a successful bridal business. She loved working for the Girl Scouts and took pride in being a part of helping young girls experience new things. She later took a position in the Blood Center. The vast part of her career was spent working in various roles for J.C. Penney in Davenport, where she retired. Beverly moved to Robbins, Iowa with her daughter, uh, Melissa Chambers, and son-in-law, Travis Chambers after Gary's passing in January of 2020. Online condolences may be directed to the family at cedarmemorial.com. Cynthia Olson K, 67, of Eugene, Oregon, formerly of Fairfax, died Tuesday, December 6, 2022. Celebration of Life will be held from 6 to 9 p.m. January 7th at Fairfax City Hall. Cynthia was born on September 11, 1955, in Mason City, Iowa, daughter of Russell and the late Elvira Olson. She graduated from Prairie in 1974, united in marriage to Tim Kay in 1978. She had two daughters, Christina and Kelly. 
She loved animals, shopping, eating out, but most of all her family. She was deeply loved and will be very much missed by all who knew her. B.J. Workman, 35, of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, passed away unexpectedly on Sunday, January 1, 2023. In agreement with his wishes, cremation has taken place. A celebration of B.J.'s life will begin at 5.30 p.m. on Thursday, January 5, 2023, at Third Base Brewery, located at 500 Blairs Ferry Road, Northeast, Number 2, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. B.J. was born on July 27, 1987, in Palos Heights, Illinois, to Jeff and Robin Workman. He was a 2005 graduate of Linmar High School and later went on to earn his plumbing apprenticeship certificate. B.J. shared a love of movies and TV shows that he watched over and over again. He would drop movie quotes into conversations to see who would catch them. B.J. loved to record sports games to watch them well after they are over and make the family stay quiet about the scores. Jessica, his partner, was his love and his protector. Wherever she was, was his home. Memorials in BJ's memory may be made to the family to be designated later. Please share a memory of BJ at MurdochFuneralHome.com. Patricia Pat Davis of Iowa City passed away peacefully on January 1, 2023. Pat was born in Olean, New York on November 30, 1935, to Joseph and Rose Griega Kelly. She graduated from St. Elizabeth's Academy and then attended the Eastman School of Music and Northwestern University, graduating with a degree in music education. In 1958, Pat married Thomas L. Tom Davis, a fellow student at Northwestern. She and Tom moved to Iowa City, where Tom worked at the University of Iowa as head of the, of the percussion department. In Iowa City, Pat taught music at University High School for a year, then settled into the role of amazing mother to her four boys. In the 1970s, Pat returned to paid work at the University of Iowa, first at the athletics office and subsequently at university hospitals and clinics as an administrative assistant. A reception will be held at Lensing's Oak Hill, Coralville, 210 Holiday Road, Coralville, on Saturday, January 7th from 2 to 4 p.m. Instead of flowers or plants, Pat requested donations be directed toward the University of Iowa Foundation in memory of the Thomas L. Davis Percussion Scholarship Fund which may be made at donate.givetoiowa.org. Online condolences and memories may be shared at lensingfuneral.com. Gary Eugene Lamphere, 82, of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, is living comfortably in his heavenly home, safely in the arms of Jesus, after being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He passed away on Sunday, January 1, 2023, surrounded by his loving family at home. Visitation will be from 2 to 5 p.m. on Sunday, January 8, 2023, at the Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. Funeral service will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Monday, January 9, 2023, at Springs of Life Church, 2326th Street Northwest, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Burial at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Gary was born July 15, 1940, in Strawberry Point, Iowa, to Ona and Oscar Lamphere. Gary graduated from Strawberry Point High School in 1959. He served in the United States Army from 1963 to 1965. Gary was united in marriage to Pearl West, and they had two sons, Jared and Chris, whom he's very proud of. They later divorced, and he married Cindy Hart on December 6, 2003, bringing together a blended family. Gary led an active life by working on his parents' farm, volunteering on the Center Point Fire Department as an EMTA. He enjoyed riding his Honda Goldwing. After 36 years of working for Rockwell Collins, he retired and began driving school bus for the Cedar Rapids Community Schools. 
For 15 more years, he also delivered Whitworth Senior Meals and worked for Brookdale Senior Living. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the family. Online condolences may be directed to cedarmemorial.com. James E. Carter, 73, of North Liberty, passed away December 17, 2022, after a year-long battle with cancer. Jim's family will receive guests for visitation on January 8, 2023, from 1 to 4 p.m. at First United Methodist Church in North Liberty, 85 North Jones Boulevard, North Liberty, followed by a celebration of life service at 4 p.m. A complete obituary can be read at gayandchia.com. James M. Farron of Surprise, Arizona. Jim Farron was born on January 20, 1938 in Brooklyn, New York, to Irish immigrant parents from Donegal, Ireland. He died on December 31, 2022. Jim is a graduate of St. John's University, New York, New York. He was employed by the Frisco Railway for over 30 years, serving in New York, Boston, and St. Louis. After the merger with the Burlington Northern Railroad, he was assigned to Atlanta, Georgia. He retired in 1993 and married Andrea Hersey in Baltimore, Maryland, before moving to Scottsdale, Arizona. A memorial celebration will be held in April 2023 at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. In lieu of flowers, consider donating to the Salvation Army or a charity of your choice. Online condolences are welcome at cedarmemorial.com. Eugene Keith Stannerson, 73, of Belle Plaine, Iowa, passed away January 2, 2023 at Mercy Medical Center, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, surrounded by family. Visitation is 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, January 5, 2023 at Robeck Newhouse Funeral Service, Belle Plaine. Private family service will take place with burial at Costa Cemetery, Costa, Iowa. Memorials may be directed to the family. Online condolences can be sent to the family at newhousefuneralservice.com. James Ray Kendall, 78, of Cedar Rapids, passed away Saturday, December 31, 2022, at the Bickford Care Center in Marion. Memorial Christian Mass, 10 a.m., Thursday, January 5, 2023, St. Matthew Catholic Parish in Cedar Rapids. Father Douglas Loki will officiate. Visitation, 9 to 10 a.m., Thursday at the church. Burial will take place in Mount Calvary Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Military rites will be rendered at the cemetery. Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services of Cedar Rapids is caring for the family. James was born December 9, 1944, the son of Leo and Charlotte in Castana, Iowa. He grew up in Toledo. Jim was the oldest of three boys. He graduated from South Tama High School in 1963. Jim remained close with his childhood friends throughout his entire life. He enjoyed getting together with them for a monthly boys' night out where they played pool together. James was a veteran of the Vietnam War. He served four years, achieving the rank of sergeant in the U.S. Marine Corps. James received an honorable discharge. He worked for the state of Iowa five years as a surveyor and at the U.S. Postal Service in Cedar Rapids for 28 years. Jim retired as superintendent of mails from the U.S. Post Office and met his wife, Teresa, while working there. After retirement, he worked for the airport shuttle for eight years and retired in November of 2018. A memorial fund has been established in James' name and may be directed to the family. Please share your support and memories of James at stuartbaxter.com. Kenneth Harold Packingham, 89, of Central City, peacefully passed away on December 23, 2022 at Cape Coral Hospital. He was born April 2, 1933, to Harold and Gladys Johnson Packingham. Kenneth graduated from Franklin in 1951. While in high school, he boxed for a Cedar Rapids boxing club. 
he won Golden Gloves champion two years in a row. Out of high school, he joined the U.S. Navy. He boxed and ran a charter boat for Navy sailors on leave. He left the Navy in 1955 to be home with his family. In 1959, he opened a machine shop, which he retired from in 2000. His sons took over, and it is still a successful family-run business in Cedar Rapids. He enjoyed yearly fishing trips to Canada. After retiring, he enjoyed spending his winters in Florida. Per Kenneth's wishes, there will not be a funeral service. Patricia Patty Vomaka Kayla, 71, of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, passed away Sunday, January 1, 2023, at the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy in Hiawatha, Iowa. A celebration of life will take place later in the spring. Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids is assisting the family. Patty was born December 14, 1951, in Cedar Rapids, the daughter of Elsner and Louise Sloop Vomaka. She graduated from Jefferson High School, class of 1970. Patty was united in marriage to Kenneth Kalis on February 28, 2006, in Las Vegas, Nevada. She greeted customers at the McGrath Collision Center for over 25 years. Patty was a charter member and served as an officer for TOPS in the Cedar Rapids area. She and Ken enjoyed camping. Above all else, Patty loved spending time with her grandkids. Please share a memory of Patty at MurdochFuneralHome.com. LaVon Mary Weber, 81, of Manchester, Iowa, passed away on Monday, January 2, 2023, at her home. She was born on January 20, 1941, in Holy Cross, the daughter of Charles Chaz and Bertha Meyer Schmidt. LaVon attended Catholic school in Holy Cross and was a 1959 graduate of Leo Catholic High School. After her graduation, LaVon worked as a secretary at John Deere in Dubuque. On February 10, 1962, LaVon was united in marriage to Joseph Weber in Holy Cross. Four children were born to this union. The couple farmed near Greeley until 1975. During this time, she babysat for multiple families in the Greeley area. LaVon then went on to work at the Delaware County Memorial Hospital in the dietary department for 18 years before retiring to care for Joe. Online condolences may be sent to leonardmullerfh.com. Massive Christian Burial, 11 a.m., Friday, January 6, 2023, at St. Mary Catholic Church, Manchester, Iowa, with Reverend Gabriel Anderson officiating. The surface, service will be live-streamed. Visitation, 2 to 8 p.m., Thursday, January 5, 2023, at Leonard Muller Funeral Home in Manchester, Iowa. Friends may also call from 10 to 10.50 a.m. before the service at the church on Friday. Interment, St. Joseph Catholic Cemetery, Greeley, Iowa. Stephen E. Golden, 78, longtime resident of Lisbon, Iowa, passed away on Friday, December 30, 2022, with family by his side. Steve, the youngest of five children, was born on September 11, 1944, to Saul and Doris Curley Golden in Oak Park, Illinois. He grew up in Benton Harbor, Michigan, and later moved to Iowa to pursue a career in sales. He was a natural-born salesman and a master negotiator. He was proud of many achievements during his career, but he was especially proud of his time as mayor of Lisbon, where the community became not only friends, but an extension of his family. Through the years, Steve enjoyed spending time pheasant hunting, trout fishing, playing poker, attending Lisbon sauerkraut days, and debating politics over dinner with his close circle of loyal longtime friends. A celebration of life for Steve will be held on February 4th with details to follow. In memory and in lieu of flowers, friends wishing to honor Steve can direct memorials to the Stephen E. Golden Memorial Fund at Mount Vernon Bank and Trust Company. Please share your support and memories with Steve's family on his tribute wall at stuartbaxter.com. 
Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services, Mount Vernon, is caring for Steve's family. Nathan John Nate Jungie Atkins passed away on Monday, January 2, 2023, at Unity Point St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids, surrounded by his loved ones, after a courageous seven-and-a-half-year battle with colon cancer. A visitation will be held at St. Stephen's Lutheran Church in Atkins on Thursday, January 5th, from 3 to 7 p.m. Funeral services will be on Friday, January 6th at 10.30 a.m. at St. Stephen's, with Pastor Doug Walton Math officiating. Burial will take place at St. Stephen's Cemetery with a luncheon to follow at the church. Nate was born August 24, 1981, to Martin and Christy Jungie in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. He grew up in Van Horn and attended Benton Community High School, graduating in 1999. After high school, he attended Hamilton Business College. On October 23, 2004, Nate married his high school sweetheart, Tammy Wilhelmy. They were united in marriage at St. Stephen's Lutheran Church. Together, they have three children. Nate started working at Jungie Control right out of high school, and he continued working there for 20 years. Nate made many friends in the agriculture industry and was well-respected by his peers. In the spring of 2020, Nate began his own business, JFF Technology, an agriculture technology company. He took on the challenge of building a business that ended up being a great bonding experience for him and his sons. In lieu of flowers, a memorial fund has been established for the family at Dupaco Credit Union. Online condolences, phillipsfuneralhomes.com. Robert Bob C. Richmond, 80, of Marion, Iowa, formerly of Cranford, New Jersey, passed away on Saturday, December 31, 2022, at Unity Point St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Family will greet friends from 10 a.m. until noon on Saturday, January 7, 2023, at Faith Bible Church in Cedar Rapids, with a celebration of life to follow at noon. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Marion is assisting the family. Bob was born June 5, 1942, in Plainfield, New Jersey, the son of Stanley and Evelyn Wood Richmond. He was a graduate of Cranford High School in New Jersey and went on to earn his bachelor's degree in business and marketing from Ryder College in Lawrenceville, New Jersey. Bob was united in marriage with Patricia E. O'Brien on October 19, 1968, in Cranford, New Jersey. He served honorably in the United States Army during the Vietnam conflict. He worked in sales management for several companies in New Jersey. Upon his retirement in 2005, he moved to Marion, where he volunteered at the public library. Memorials in Bob's memory may be directed to the Alzheimer's Association at 317 7th Avenue Southeast, number 402, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, 52401. Please share a memory of Bob at MurdochFuneralHome.com under obituaries. Gladys Tholen, 91, of Monticello, died Monday, January 2, 2023, at her daughter's home following a brief illness. Funeral services will be held 11 a.m. Saturday, January 7, 2023, at St. Matthew Lutheran Church, Monticello, with interment in Oakwood Cemetery. Friends may call from 4 until 7 p.m. Friday at the Getch Funeral Home, Monticello. Pastor David Ramish will officiate at the services. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to St. Matthew Lutheran Church or Camp Courageous. Gladys Frieda Foss was born November 20, 1931, in Lovell Township, Jones County, Iowa. She was the daughter of Albert and Marie Friedrichs Foss. Gladys went to Lovell Township School No. 9 and No. 1 before going to high school in Monticello. She graduated with a class of 1950 from the Monticello Community Schools. Gladys married Duane Tholen on August 24, 1949 at Little Brown Church, Nashua. 
The couple farmed on the Foss family farm north of Monticello. She retired from active farming in 1995. Gladys was a lifelong member of St. Matthew Lutheran Church and a member of St. Matthew Sewing Circle. Gladys was also active in the Federated Garden Club, now the Forget-Me-Nots, attending her last meeting on December 15, 2022. Susan Dale Conway, 74, passed away on the evening of January 2, 2023, at her home, surrounded by family. Service, 11 a.m. Saturday, January 7, at the church at Covington. A memorial luncheon in her honor will follow. Tea and Funeral Home and Cremation Service is serving the family. Susan is the loving daughter of Howard and Margaret Collar and native of Palo. She graduated from Denton Shellsburg High School in 1966. Susan was the compassionate mother to three sons, Brent, Sean, and Dominique, and two daughters, Margaret and Shavanda. She spent her life affectionately caring for others by working in a nursing home, providing daycare, and helping friends and family become better people. Memorials may be directed to Waypoint at waypointservices.org. Online condolences can be left at tnfuneralhome.com. That concludes today's obituaries. Moving on to sports, here is today's Iowa football article. Van Ness declares for NFL draft by John Stepp. Iowa defensive lineman Lucas Van Ness will forego his remaining eligibility and declare for the NFL draft, he said Tuesday on social media. Van Ness, a redshirt sophomore, is, a project, is projected to be one of the top defensive linemen in the 2023 draft class. ESPN's Todd McShade projected Van Ness last month to be taken 20th by the Dallas Cowboys. McShay and ESPN's Mel Kuyper Jr. both ranked Van Ness as the third best defensive end in the class. After redshirting in 2020, Van Ness was a key part of Iowa's defensive line in 2021-2022, despite technically having a second-team role on the depth chart. He was tied for the team lead in sacks in 2021 with seven and was second on the team with six sacks in 2022 behind Deontay Craig. Van Ness led the team with tackles for loss in 2022 with 10.5. My time at Iowa has been very special and I will always be a Hawkeye, Van Ness said on Twitter. It was not an easy decision to leave the University of Iowa with remaining eligibility. It has been a lifelong dream of mine to play in the NFL. Iowa's defensive line is expected to have plenty of depth despite the loss of Van Ness. Craig, who had 6.5 sacks and 10 tackles for loss as a second-team defensive end, highlights the list of Iowa defensive linemen who are in good positions to take on larger roles. Aaron Graves also could see a larger role. He recorded 5.5 tackles for loss and 2.5 sacks in 2022, despite taking less than half as many snaps as Iowa's top five defensive linemen. Iowa quarterback Carson May has entered the transfer portal, he announced Tuesday morning on social media. May, a true freshman, was Iowa's number four quarterback during the regular season and number two in the Music City Bowl. He did not see any game action. The Jones, Oklahoma native would potentially have been the number three quarterback in 2023 behind Cade McNamara and Joe Labas. McNamara has two years of eligibility remaining and Labas has three. Iowa also will have Marco Lenez, a three-star quarterback arriving as a true freshman in the summer. As a recruit, May had a three-star rating from 24-7 Sports and a four-star rating from Rivals. He also had offers from Western Michigan and Old Dominion. May has four years of eligibility remaining. Now to Iowa State basketball. ISU's Lipsy playing like a veteran. Cyclones hit the road to face Oklahoma today by Rob Gray. Iowa State's Tamman Lipsy cleaned up, cooled down, and briefly basked in the afterglow of his team's convincing Big 12 season opening men's basketball win Saturday over then number 12 Baylor, 77-62. 
Then he strode back onto the floor of Hilton Coliseum, eager to connect with loved ones, but found himself momentarily blocked. The smooth and skilled six-foot-one point guard didn't mind a bit. He smiled instead. I was like, I can't wait to see my family, said Lipsy, who scored eight points, while dishing out a career-high tying eight assists against the Bears. I had about 30 people wanting autographs and pictures, and I was out there for like 15 minutes before I even saw my family, but I love that stuff. I love being able to make someone's day, make a kid's day, because I know what it's like. Lipsy's ability to defend at a high level, finish at the rim, and crisply facilitate at such a young age has been a key component of early season success for the Cyclones, 10-2-1-0, who face Oklahoma, 9-4-0-1, at 6 tonight in Norman. The Ames native ranks among the top seven in the league in assists per game, 4th at 4.7, assist to turnover ratio, 6th, 4.7 to 1.8, and steals, 7th, 2.0. Against Baylor, Lipsy ignited a 10-0 run late in the first half that helped ISU eventually snap a nine-game regular season losing streak in the series, and Bears coach Scott Drew took notice. I think any freshman that plays in this league's got to be special because you're not going to play as a freshman and win if they're not special, Drew said after the game. I think the best thing he does is take care of the basketball. He's tremendous, doesn't turn it over, and gets his shooters, shot, and gets his shooters shots. And the other thing is defensively, he's really, really good for a freshman. Lipsy's just getting started, too. He'll need to be at his best on a nightly basis and continue to prepare, practice, and play like a veteran. By all accounts, he's consistently delivering on those fronts. He's a tremendous competitor, said Cyclone head coach T.J. Otzelberger, whose team leads the nation in turnover percentage, 30.7, according to Ken Palm. He cares, has that sense of pride, really wants our team to do well, and you could sense something in him at that point in the Baylor game, where my team needs me right now and it's time to step up. Credit to him for seeing it and being that intentional and stepping up and doing it. Each ISU player will obviously need to do the same against the Sooners and throughout the rugged Big 12 slate. Every team in the league is among the top 44 in the net ratings and five are in the top 26. Oklahoma is 44th, but excels at shooting three-pointers, 34.9%, ninth nationally, and defending beyond the arc, 26.8%, seventh nationally. They're going to be hungry for a win, Otzelberger said, coming off a tough loss, a one-point loss to number six Texas at home. They've got a lot of defensive intent, and offensively, they can really pace the floor. Lipsy's helping the Cyclones do the same, and will likely attract more post-game admirers as he builds off his success. He plays at his own pace, ISU senior forward Tree King said. Nobody rattles him. Nobody gets him sped up, and it's beautiful. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, January 4th, 2022. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening. <music>